Welcome to The Rant. I'm your host, Herman James, and on today's episode, we'll be talking to Lander Nelson. This part of the podcast is brought to you by Libsyn. Are you looking to start a podcast or want to know where to move your podcast to to get the best possible outcome? Libsyn is the top-rated host for your podcast. Use promo code HERMAN for your first month free. everybody thank you for tuning in thank you for sharing thank you for watching the rant and helping us get to where we are now uh unlike the recent episodes we've been doing that have been international for us on this episode we actually have lander nelson with us how you doing i'm doing very well thank you for having me on thank you for being on uh Lander actually reached out wanted to be on the show uh he's actually more well versed in the world travels in person than I am. A majority of what has gone on with the rent has been a lot of the virtual things and people asking to come on. And we've been a lot of interviews with Australia, some South Korean people out there. And now we're, we're back in the States. Uh, your bio says you're what 14th generation American. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 14th generation American. Uh, I was born on the Oregon coast myself, but uh, more than 400 years ago, uh, I had uh, ancestors being born on the East Coast there in Virginia. Nice. And see, um, before the call, we had a a fun interaction before the recording. And excuse me, uh, if you try and do Google me and find me and find my background and see who I am. And... uh, some of the earlier episodes of The Rant have expressed Herman James is essentially what I was called when I was young. And every time I got in trouble by my mother for saying something or doing things that weren't exactly considered all right. So I figured The Rant is my soapbox. I'm able to kind of say and do what I want, which doesn't exactly jive well with everybody so people tend to yell at me for doing it so i figured the name you get yelled at the most would be the perfect name to use for the rant so when you do search my name you do come up with a uh, i think it's a world war ii uh soldier is that correct uh yes herman james good a uh a a soldier <laughs> from the actual the canadian expeditionary forces during world war one one recipient of the Victoria Cross. There you go. And then if you actually go with my full actual name, there's actually a soldier who has passed that pops up as well. And I actually had, uh, when I worked in the restaurants in college, a uh, family came in with my actual real name and came in and asked if I knew the story behind that Herman and how that came afoot and all this. And they thought we were some long lost ancestral what i it, it weirds me out that that is a possibility because i don't know how it works but i also assume that everyone with the last name of smith are not all related so <laughs> it's it's a fun kind of weirdity of how that comes about but i am for sure not a fourth generation 14th generation American, uh, my father's side is actual Cherokee Indian from here i think my father was I think he was 25% Cherokee Indian. So I'm less than that, half that. And then my mother's ancestry came from all over. 
I think she was a uh, Polish, French, uh, German, English, God knows what else. So I am a giant mutt and just consider myself like everyone else is an American. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm also a, uh, mutt as well. Uh, I mean, most Americans are mutts, especially geez, you got 14 generations. That's a lot of, uh, mixing up. So, uh, <laughs> Some of my ancestors were kind of the old colonial stock, but also some of my ancestors were more recent uh, arrivals. I had some arrivals from Germany and Denmark in the uh, in the mid 1800s. So um, you probably go back a lot farther than you might think. You know, if if you have any connection pre Civil War, then pretty much anybody who has a connection pre Civil War. Um, has a connection going back way, way further than that. Because after the revolution, there was no immigration basically whatsoever uh, until uh, basically the decade after the Civil War is when immigration uh, really started. So uh, if you have any type of pre-Civil War ancestry, then almost certainly you also have some uh, colonial uh, ancestry as well. Oh, for sure. And I think uh, my father's sister really kept all of that and researches the heck out of everything and tries to find out all the ancestral DNA from way back when, uh, good or bad to me. I honestly don't care too much, um, about my own personal. I just, I have never thought of it too much to want to look back into it, to find things out. I'm probably also a little afraid of finding out there's some really gnarly things in my history that I probably don't want to know and dwell on and kind of deal with. So that portion of it, I'm not huge with because it's just not a, a thing for me. History in general, I love. I'm a huge proponent of if you didn't learn from the past, it's going to repeat itself and it kind of moves forward that way. And I think a lot of what we interact with nowadays and in today's culture especially what just happened today in uh, the Senate, it, it shows that there's a bound to repeat itself culture and things are going to repeat themselves. Now, your YouTube, you do talk a lot about the news and kind of current events and things that go on with that. So have you kind of seen everything that was going on and kind of coming on to now? In my personal experience, I would have been on the rant and going off of what's been going on really since before January 6th and kind of pushing that through. I haven't gone that route because I've been taking my own personal battles in person with people and uh, their comments and statements and kind of combating that without coming on here and doing it. But I know this is something that you're actually well-versed in. So what do you think? Uh, are you referencing uh, Trump being acquitted? I am. In the Senate trial? Yeah. Um. Well, I, I would say that my perspective is that I, I, I look at issues facing with the American people from a little bit more of a um, international perspective because I've, I've had the good fortune of being able to travel to 75 different countries. Uh, and so I like to look at this through the lens of how would this be viewed and, and, and what would be the details occurring around this if this was to occur in another place? And generally, uh, when one outgoing government is uh, you know, on trial or <laughs> they're trying to arrest them or they're trying to imprison them or 
uh, take them off of platforms or et cetera and so forth. This is extremely common in very poor, very broken um, countries. Uh, we see this a lot in kind of post-colonial African countries. Um, you know, these countries that have only gained independence in the 60s, they have very weak states and they don't really view, and they, they have democracies technically, but they view the government more as kind of the ring of power. And one tribe gets a hold of the ring of power and then they use it to clobber their opponents and hurt their opponents and they throw the opposition in jail and, and they take away all the stuff of the opposition. And then, um, and then the next election cycle comes and the other tribe wins and they get the ring of power. And then all of the, all the other sides that lost all go run and hide into hiding. I remember I was in Cambodia and an election was coming up in Cambodia and Cambodia is one of the uh, most messed up countries in Southeast Asia, one of the poorest. And uh, an election was coming up in Cambodia and all the Cambodian people were telling me, you have to get out of the country before election day. They're like, you know, you, you think it's fun, you think it's fun and games, but the winning side is going to go on a rampage and they're going to try to hurt the losing side and the lo- and it's going to be battles in the streets and there's going to be ro- all this, you know, if you're part of one, you know, let's say just the littlest things you don't even imagine, like let's say you have a store and um, you have like a, a neighbor, he, he works for the, you know, and he's supporting the, uh, the opposition, supporting, let's, let's say a different, a different group. Um, and let's say that your group wins. Well, then you and your friends could go and maybe smash up that person's store and steal a bunch of their stuff. And then if that person calls the police, the police are going to be like, well, hey, you know, hey, it's, it's election weekend. It's election <laughs> week. You know, hey, this is how it goes. So um, in general, I'm quite opposed to any behavior that makes us that it makes us appear uh, third world or or broken or uh, dysfunctional in, in any way, you know, because perception is reality. But it, you also make it sound like it is an outdated kind of a thing. It happens in weaker third party countries, but look at Myanmar. It just happened there. They, the military literally just came in and took over the government. So they used a military force, which the Trump administration was being advised to do in the United States. And so it's, it's a now a common thing. And I think for my issue with how things go forward and how they've been acting now is we're now showing that we are not a democracy and that we don't have to have politicians that have to, oh, my pillow, golly, <laughs> we, we don't have is, to. Is that your referencing when he left the, uh, when he left the interview with the, the note paper and they zoomed in on it and it said uh, martial law. Yeah, and that we also had um, the military general that was uh, pardoned from Trump, not the military general, excuse me, who was pardoned by Trump that said that he needs to be using military force to uh, overturn the election because he can. Was that was uh, Flynn? Michael Flynn? Or was, Flynn, was that, yeah. Okay. So uh, Flynn was saying that he can use martial law to force a re-election to stay in power. And so these are things that we think of as a third world country. And then Myanmar literally just took in their military, took out their Nobel Peace Prize winning head of their democracy because she did not denounce the genocide of people over there. Meanwhile, 
our then president is allowing people to denounce votes. They are allowed to have our own people walking across the country denouncing religions, saying Jews will not overtake us. And apparently Jews have space lasers that are blowing up our California forests. And that's our freaking representative. That's what we have out here doing this. And when you try to put a checks and balance system in place, that's there to protect us, our government, and the people. When you scream cancel culture enough, everyone puts their hands up and says, okay, it's okay if you do that because we don't want to be on the bad side of these people that are good on both sides because they might come after me next. It's a, it's a weird world we live in now where the entitled people, me being a, you know, six foot one, 220 pound white dude, I already have privilege in myself being white. And now I can say when people tell me that I'm being racist or I'm being just outright wrong to shut up. And I say, oh, you're trying to cancel me. We've told the world. It's okay that I said that because I said you're canceling me. And if you have an opposition to that, well, look at what we just did. We just allowed an ex-president to walk away scot-free, potentially run for office again because his, what they call his base, were disenfranchised. Under half the population that voted lost, but they were disenfranchised. And we told the world, hey, it's okay. We can overthrow ourselves. Don't worry about it. We'll be okay. We're just a bunch of idiots. Uh, yeah, I mean, to be honest, this whole, I, <laughs> this is a bit radical, but, uh, <laughs> I personally don't like, um, there being a president. I, 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 we, we have a revolution. We get rid of a King and we replace him with the president was never supposed to become a King. The president was never supposed to become a figure that that was like a black hole drawing in our, all of our nation's attention and energy and focus. Um, yeah, sure, the president is more important than a senator, but the president should not be wildly more important than a senator. And yet that's what our presidents have become. I would like to see the office, you know, yeah, maybe we have to have an executive branch, but what if the executive branch was run by, say, a council of elders as opposed to one single president? Um, because it just, it, it frustrates me so much because I, I spent, um, more of my time, uh, during the uh, Trump uh, presidency abroad than I did domestically. And everybody on earth knows who the president of the U S is and knows all of his personal flaws and all of his problems and his big mouth. And they know of all the controversial things they've said. And they are constantly like, well, why, why does he say this? Why does he do that? Why does he do that? And I'm like, he is a human being. He is a <laughs> very old man from New York City that I have nothing to do with, that I've never met. He's from thousands of miles away from where I was born and where I've spent nearly my entire time in America. So I've always been so frustrated having to feel like I have to defend just this one person out of hundreds of millions. And so, uh, yeah, I, I would love to see the, uh, 
the president be replaced by a, a quiet council of elders who is not going to uh, soak up the spotlight. Yeah, but uh, see, because it is battle. That's what the way. Senate's supposed to be. That's what the Congress is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a bunch of people that are able to keep the presidency in check and in balance. And that's what they're supposed to be able to do. However, we have now shown if the president doesn't like your opinion and he fires you or he challenges that you're going to come up in a primary the next year and you're going to lose your hundred and what I think it's 130 or $160,000 a year that you make sitting in a chair and your endorsements from fossil fuel companies, big pharma and all these other political groups, you're going to shut up and back up and let him do whatever he wants. So my biggest thing isn't really with the presidency. And I, I do agree. I think the president is known around the world and we have to defend ourselves to others for what they do. And I think that's part of the downside of just being an American going out if you have a negative president. But it's also something you can be proud of if they've done something you believe in. A lot of Trump fans really believe he did a great thing for them. And so they're happy and obliged to put a Trump flag on everywhere, tattoo Trump all over themselves and go the way. Trump is less a president and more of a brand than anything else for the past four years. My biggest issue is with the fact we don't have term limits. Why do we have people that have sat on the Senate and in the Congress for 30 and 40 years? Why is Joe Biden in the office now after he's been trying to run for how many years and didn't get in? And he was, what, win the Senate for 50 fucking years, I think? I mean, he's in his 80s, isn't he? And he's in the office now. And we have people that have been out for so long that are opposed to anything new. 78, I was close. 80 was uh, my guess on that one. Um, But you have people like Turtle Mitch McConnell who doesn't want to do things because it's against what I was... I think this is more McConnell. But he's opposed... same, Same age. And they've worked together the entire time there. But he's against change. Because that's not what he's used to. And then you have people like AOC who wants equality. She's, I don't think she's asking for things that are radical. But when you ask a 78-year-old to agree with... Oh, is that Pelosi? Golly. <laughs> and when you ask someone who is ingrained in their ways of doing things, they don't want to move. And I think if we didn't allow these people to sit in these seats for so long and accrue so much power if they've got to leave every four years and you can't come back in after four, six, eight, two years, whatever it might be, we would have a more progressive movement. And I don't mean that we're going to have socialism because I hate people that argue against socialism but want to make sure they get social security. That's a fun one. It's just a fun way of thinking that Oh, well, we've been this way for the past hundred years. Okay, yeah, that doesn't make it right. That doesn't make what we do right because we've done it for a hundred years. So I think that's my biggest thing. It isn't the presidency. I think it's more of the parties we have in place that put that president where they're at. What we have been going through wasn't new. Trump didn't bring it for the first time. He definitely pulled open old scabs. He definitely made things worse. 
but he didn't do it alone. They allowed him to run amok. It's like a, a bad parent who lets a child run around a freaking target and just throwing dishes and plates at everyone goes, I mean, it's a kid. What do you want me to do? Discipline the kid. Teach it rules, regulations. Do what you're supposed to do. Not let it run amok. You're not going to learn things if you just run amok. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it, it's interesting that you brought up um, Myanmar before because I, I've actually spent a month in Myanmar um, just a couple of years ago. And uh, I went all over the country and I, I went to the capital. They, they built this crazy capital out in the middle of the jungle, the military government. Um, Myanmar became a democracy, I guess, a few years ago, and now they're no longer a democracy once again. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's a good point that you made of, uh, of yeah, on both sides, uh, you see this, this escalation of behavior. And... Yes, uh, certainly the parties have a lot to do with it as well. You know, George Washington didn't want uh, political parties. Uh, Thomas Jefferson wanted the Constitution to expire with each passing generation and for every generation to write for themselves a new Constitution. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that we are living in a time period in which we, the young people of this country, have to reevaluate who we are and what we want and um, really uh, examine the, the fundamental and basic questions because we are facing a time in this country where it seems like we can't even agree on the most basic of, of uh, existential questions. Agreed. And I think I can honestly say if it wasn't for the Trump-Hillary uh campaigns four years ago, I probably wouldn't have got as deep into politics as I have become. I, I watch the news. I read the news. I look into politics. I know what I'm voting and I make sure I know who I'm voting for beforehand. I don't just vote down party lines. Um, I believe it was Pennsylvania that changed that ability uh, to take off the vote down party lines at the top of their ballots this year to make sure that uh, it was a Republican push. So the Republicans didn't get skipped for someone that didn't want to vote for Trump and they could still get voted for. So you didn't have that going all the way down, which is funny. I didn't even know that existed until watching things. But I think it's people not having the urge to get their own independent ed education. I graduated from Sac State as a kinesiology major. I was going into physical therapy as a career when I was in school. The market crashed and I did not have the ability to get into where I wanted to be because by the time the world came back from the recession, every possible place I could have gone to was pulling people from other jobs, from other medical facilities that were closing down because they couldn't keep open. So I got my degree and I moved on and I did what I do best and I pivot. So I don't have a background in political science or in history or anything of that. I haven't been a world traveler like you. And we'll get to that in a second, kind of where you've been and why you've gone there. I traveled when I was younger to some European countries and now my now wife and I are looking to do a honeymoon here in the coming months if COVID can 
ever get under control in this country so we can actually get out anywhere and do something to be able to do that. But I think people's lack of wanting to question the right things and question things in general is what bothers me the most. My degree in kinesiology taught me that you have to question everything. Don't look at a result and just take it at point blank. Question everything you read because in my education, you would see that ABC drug cures impotency. And this survey or this research shows all of it in this study. Well, then you look at the study and it was four people took the pill. And out of four people, one person had this reaction. And so now they're shipping out as this. The results are there. They're not wrong what they said. The pill did do this, but that wasn't how it came about. So researching things and finding things out is what's helped me kind of digest things little by little. But I have conversations with people all the time that are less educated on things that I feel I'm better educated on. And I have conversations with people that are way, way more educated on things than I am. And I learn things from them. I don't combat that. So it's it's a different world for me when I see people just taking everything in as a truth, no matter who it's from. I don't care who it is and not questioning it. I would assume you come across that quite a bit when you go to different parts of the world. Everyone has like an interpretation of what we do here, say here, how it works. And I, it's got to be fun to hear from other people's other people's point of view and just absorb it, learn, or just kind of educate on that. How, how has that gone for you? Well, um, yeah, in my travels across the world, it is always very uh, interesting, very fun to learn about the different perspectives. And wow, there is a massive variance <laughs> of those perspectives. Um, Americans, it's so funny, Americans uh, oftentimes, because Americans are so spoiled, because, um, because so many people will try, will, are trying to move here or have moved here, so many people are trying to gain access to our media market, uh, we're so spoiled. We can learn about the rest of the world, and we can learn about the rest of the world in our terms. We can go on YouTube and we can find videos of, of Armenian people speaking in English, uh, directly to an Anglo audience trying to explain their culture, tr- showing stuff around. You can find, uh, you know, literally thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of videos in English for basically every country. Um, we are so spoiled as Americans, as Anglos. Um, and so we have this very warped perception of the world and that we think that kind of like everyone is just like a lesser version of us. Mm-hmm. So an American will think that, well, a, a, a Chinese is just a kind of like an American, but with uh, a little less money, a little less freedom, uh, oh. a little less English. And, um, and it's like, no, no, they, they have a totally different perspective on, on life. And, and this comes from uh, so many points of difference. And um, so... <laughs> So yeah, that's that's one fun thing I, I've learned from uh, from travel and experiencing other peoples that I wish I could impart to my fellow Americans. And then the second thing I wish I could impart to my fellow Americans 
uh, about this perspective is that Americans, we really love to criticize ourselves. We really love to talk about the worst things about ourselves and say horrible things about ourselves and blah, blah, blah. And we kind of know that, well, that's just kind of who we are. We're hypercritical. We're a little rude. We're, that's just how we are as Americans. I'm a lot rude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then the problem is, it's so, what's so funny is I've, I tra- I've traveled internationally pre-Trump and post-Trump. And what's so funny is that the perception of we, the American people, radically shifted after Trump's election because what we were saying in our media, and remember when we put stuff out in the media, the rest of the world is watching as well. What we were putting out in our media, it went from being more positive stuff about Americans. Oh, Americans are nice and wonderful. Don't we love Americans? To, geez, well, man, maybe half of Americans are deplorables who hate the rest of the world, et cetera, and so forth. And so a lot of people around the world started, after Trump started saying things like, geez, do do, do Americans hate Brazilians? Do Americans hate uh, hate Italians? Do Americans hate uh you know indians and i i go well um <laughs> i think that the 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 uh, level of um skepticism is about the same as it has always been it's just that the media uh, has changed uh because the figurehead has changed and so i i wish that uh i wish that one americans were more respectful of that uh the rest of the world is not just little america and then number two, that Americans spoke more nicely of each other, because yeah, uh, but you you, you say that it's the media's changed because of the figurehead. The media has changed, and that is correct. But it's not just the figurehead that's out there; it's the message that they put out. So when you don't condone, or excuse me, you don't. Uh, I guess condone, yeah, condone. The people doing the right things and you condone people doing the wrong things and you don't say bad about people, white supremacists going out to murder people and having rallies to honestly do all of that. That's what you portray out to people and that's what the media picks up on and the media is a business. The media needs clickbait, really. I mean, they need to be able to push things through. They need to increase their volume and fear mongering does it. And that's across the board with everything. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if it's climate, if it's illness, if it's uh, wars, it's always been that way. It's always been fear mongering gets people to get views. And that's kind of what goes out there for it. And I, I think that the idea of an impartial media nowadays, I don't even think it exists. I i absolutely feel there is a vast, vast difference between Newsmax and CNN, and there needs to be a nice alternate in the middle where they just report. And it's not a pro this, pro that. It's just hey, by the way, this happened today. So-and-so said this, so-and-so said this. This also happened. Oh, by the way, here's squirrels on water skis. Have a good day. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there there is some truth, of course, in what you're saying. Uh, that is a good point. Um, 
So <laughs> let's see. Let's see. I, what, what should I, how should I respond to that? So uh, uh, I, I would say that uh, my comment is a little less about organizations. I mean, obviously, yeah, you know, the, the tone of CNN and such change because of who the, the, the person is in office, as it should, as you've said. And, and obviously, of course, if it blades, it leads. And that is the nature of the media. And uh, to a certain extent, I can't criticize them for their nature. Um, but I, my comment is more towards just the general American people. And then I, I think I've noticed that the the vibes, the message that Americans are sending out to the rest of the world on social media at a personal level uh, in the past five years has been very, uh, very anti-American, very harshly critical. Yeah. And so, so I would more just say that, you know, to to Americans who are, you know, they they maybe have some rightful uh some righteous, probably some proper criticisms of the former administration, but it's like, so, so for example, like, let's say, take China. China is actively, uh, actively has near, nearly a million or more than a million uh, people from Xinjiang imprisoned as we speak. Um, they are trying to, uh, trying to erase, trying to take over Xinjiang, trying to erase the Uyghur people, the Turkic peoples from really well, they're just calling it there. re-education camps. They're just re-educating them is what they're saying. Yes, yes, re-education. Yes, that's it. And so, you know, but, but so like a Chinese person, if a Chinese person wanted to, they could go on Facebook. Well, I mean, they can't go on Facebook, but let's say they go to the United States, they can go on Facebook. They could go on Facebook and they could complain about uh, Chinese policies and, chi- and and this and that all day long, uh, and, and the the list of things they'd have would be longer than my arm. Um, there are so many worse things going on in so many countries than here. But what I've noticed is that when you go to other uh, places, people are much are just like, well, hey, <laughs> our our gut, politics suck. The government sucks. It sucked for a thousand years here. It's nothing's ever going to change. When you, like when you go to a, say, um, almost any country in the world, they never talk about the greatness of their people being the greatness of the state, or the greatness of the policies, uh, the greatness of the constitution. They all, you know, when you go to France, do they go? Oh, we're so proud of our French constitution. We're so proud of our French laws. They go. No, we love our French language, our French culture, our French history. That is what we're so proud of. You know, when you when you go to uh, China, they they when you ask what are you so proud of as Chinese people, they're going to talk about the beauty of their homeland, the beauty of their culture, their history, their art, their music, their their food, their family, their cities. But they're not going to say, well, the greatest thing about we the Chinese people is our the current incarnation of our government. Um, because the Chinese have been around for thousands of years and some governments have been very bad. Well, most of them have been very bad <laughs> and a few have been all good, good, but no, no Chinese person goes, Oh, the greatest thing about we Chinese is, is this emperor from 1530 is, is this law is this constitutional yeah. amendment? I think technically they have a constitution. And so I, I just wish that Americans could get away from constantly talking about this one one of our 78 or 80 year old or 79 year old people in office so thousands of miles away in some in some uh in some random city 
I wish that Americans would stop talking about these weird old politicians and the policy and the laws that they're able to pass with each other because we have very little control over that. I wish that Americans would start talking about the things that, uh, uh, that are great about this land and about our people. About the same, I wish that Americans talked, the way, uh, talked about our identity the way that a Chinese person would talk about their identity. I wish that Americans, instead of when they're on social media, uh, or, or, or talking with their friends or abroad, instead of talking about the president and the Senate and the Congress and politics, they instead said the greatness of our people is the beauty of our land, our food, our culture, our music, our language, our religion, our history, our achievements, um, our cities. That is the greatness of America, of we the American people. <laughs> not, not our government. That is uh, probably, you know, like, 457th on the list of great things about we the American people. Yeah, but you're, you're also going off of the youngest developing country that's out there. I mean, we pride ourselves on the Constitution and everything that goes off because that separated us from England having that way about it. That's our biggest flaw as well. We stick to an old-ass document that was written by people that aren't around that didn't have the same things going now. And I think the things that we should be proud of, the inclusivity, the multicultural ideas that we all are able to hold and how we are a melding pot to be able to develop new and better people and thoughts and theories and ideas, that gets attacked by our politicians and by our president. So it's hard to differentiate the two where you can say, we have a great welcoming welcoming culture we want everyone to come in and then you have if you're muslim you can't come in here if you're mexican you're a murderous you're a rapist you can't be here i have learned so much from so many random people i've never known in my life just by a random conversation with people i don't care who you are i love talking to everybody i think that's what's great so when people ask me why don't i travel more it's really not about travel for me. I honestly don't care to go see landmarks of things. I don't care to go see the Great Wall of China. I don't care to go see the London Bridge. I've seen things of that nature. I've been to London. I've seen all that. I've been to Paris. I've seen that. That, to me, isn't my favorite thing in the world. Now, my preference to travel, I want to drink around the world. I want to go to a pub in London during rugby or soccer and be enveloped in that kind of situation. I want to go have sake over in Japan. I want to go and do those kind of things. That's fun for me, be enveloped in a culture of doing something, not to go and see things. And I think that's what's great. I don't know that people see that the same way when they come to the States. When you people come here, it's they want to be able to better themselves. They want to have what they call the American dream and see if they can prosper in a land where we have said for hundreds of years that you can do that. And I think that that should be nurtured and cultivated and allowed to happen for anyone that can be able to do that. I think that is something that we need to kind of hold on to and kind of move with. And I agree with you. I think people should be more happy to express the things of our country and 
what you've done here and what you've succeeded in seeing to be able to go around the world and tell people that. I also feel that I am heavily, heavily blessed to talk to people. And when they ask where I'm from, when I say California, I don't know why, but everyone thinks that California is like its own isolated area across from the United States. It's a different like entity of itself. Although everyone also thinks that I, I surf and that means people haven't been to Northern California where it's like 30 degrees in the water and there's sharks in San Francisco Bay. So no one's really going surfing out there and not everywhere is Baywatch. I wish it was. That would be great. Everyone's in slow motion and running. That'd be awesome. It's just not the same way. So I think there is that disconnect from what's great for us to be able to express to other people, especially like you said, when the news puts out what they want to have out in there. And that's what you see around the world. I mean, I don't see a lot of fun things coming from other places unless it's an oddity from other parts of the world. It's just not something I see. Granted, I don't watch, you know, the BBC news or watch things that are kind of putting out that way. I was years ago watching the, uh, the naked news. That was a fun one. That's also on, uh, the, uh, Australian uh, sex award show. They're a sponsor out there. They're a Canadian program. Now. Fantastic folks. That's <laughs> well, just a, a small fun twist on the, the world, I guess on that one. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> I definitely, uh, I definitely feel you on a few of those things. Um, it is, let's, uh, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about, let's, let's, let's go a little, get a little controversial here. If you don't mind, want, want to talk a little bit about immigration? Talk about uh, sure. It it depends on your view and how it's going to be controversial, but I'm all in. Let's go. Um. So I, uh, I would say that the melting pot is really failing and has failed for all of my lifetime. I've never been alive when I have seen the melting pot functioning um, as it did in the past, as it should. Um. So I have become more skeptical. Um, In which manner? Uh, well, I, I, people, people, people will go, well, you know, immigration's wonderful. Let's have more immigration. Da, 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 da. And I go, well, uh, the melting pot has kind of stopped, kind of stopped about 40, 50 years ago. So I don't really want uh, until the melting pot starts to function again until we until Americanism uh, Americanization is a thing uh, I would like to have an immigration moratorium and so what do you mean the Americanism what what is that ideal to you and what is it you want to see more of well I would like the uh, so the phrase the melting pot comes from a play um, and Actually, let me pull up the line of the, the melting pot. So the, the, the melting pot uh, is... That one there, that is a uh, restaurant. <laughs> yes, that is a Portland restaurant. That is, not, uh, that is not the play I'm looking for. This is, the play was actually written by a, uh, a, uh, an immigrant himself from... Uh, 
the Russian Empire, I believe, in the final lines of The Melting Pot. The protagonist proclaims, quote, There she lies, the great melting pot. Listen, can you hear the roaring and the bubbling? There gapes her mouth, the harbor where a thousand mammoth feeders come from the ends of the world to pour in their human freight. Ah, what a stirring and seething. Celt and Latin, Slav and Teuton, Greek and Syrian, black and yellow. Yes, east and west, north and south, the prim and the pine, the pole or the palm and the pine, the pole and the equator, the crescent and the cross, how the great alchemist melts and fuses them with purging flame. Here shall they all unite to build the Republic of Man and the Kingdom of God. Ah, Vera, what is the glory of Rome and Jerusalem where all nations and races come to worship and look back compared with the glory of America where all nations come to labor and look forward? So that is, uh, that is the origination of the phrase, the melting pot. And I would say that the melting pot has stopped uh, effectively working. It stopped melting. The fires have been turned down quite a bit uh, in the past 50 years. So how how do you mean that they've been turned off? Do you mean that there is less immigration for particular countries or there is less assimilation or integration? How how do you mean that it's been turned off? Both. Um, We take uh, far more immigrants from, well, we take far more just in general. We take far more from countries that are uh, far less similar to ours. And we also are taking immigrants that have far less of an interest in integrating. And we are promoting immigration ourselves far less than we historically did. So it's a, it's a three front uh, problem here. Yeah. And that is true. There, the idea of immigration as it, was originally when you had everyone coming to the country, Irish building the skyscrapers of Manhattan and everything kind of around that, where everyone wanted to be here and everyone was willing to, you know, integrate with each other and assimilate to the ideals of what America is, learn the language, the culture kind of built into that. It changed because we started to wanting to welcome everybody in from every background, every different culture and let them express themselves in their own way. So yeah, I think the idea of melting everything into our one ideal, I think that has changed. I do think that some immigration from other countries has slowed down. I think it's still there. It stopped a lot for the past four years. It's gone that way. But the other side of that is doing what the French do. And they were making cultures sign a contract pledging themselves loyal to the state and not their religion. You can't wear any sort of religious idea on yourself, whether it's a cross, a hijab, I probably said that wrong, or anything of that idea out in public, in schools, anything, because that is supposed to be neutral areas. You can't do that. But then again, you have everyone in France who speaks French. And so I think in America, you have people that don't want to speak English. They don't think they have to and not going to. We don't force upon anyone. I mean, our driver's tests in California come in, what, seven different languages, I think? I don't know if that's the same in every other country around the world. I don't think I can go to China 
and get a license there and get a test in American English. I don't think that's a thing. It could be. I could be wrong. Well, it, it's it's more than just that. It's um, it's that there's it's virtually impossible for you or or any other person from any Western country to even become a citizen of China. Uh, China allows only a f- only grants citizenship to a few thousand people every year. And remember, China has more people than the entire than has twice as many people. Uh, well, nearly twice as many people as mainland Europe. Um, in fact, uh, if you looked at all European identifying people on Earth, there are hundreds of millions more people who identify as Chinese than all people on Earth who identify as European. So China only allows a few thousand people every year to get citizenship mm-hmm. um, in China. And if you want to get citizenship in China, you have to have an immediate family member who is Chinese. So you have to have married. It's usually you have married a Chinese person. Um, and then you have to give up your citizenship, citizenship from, yeah. your, from your previous place. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's say I wanted to become a Chinese citizen. I would have to become immediate direct family members with a Chinese person. And then I would have to um, renounce my American citizenship. Mm-hmm. And I would have to go and I have to spend many, 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 many years, uh, far longer than more and more difficult than our process. And I can guarantee you that none of those forms I'd be filling out would be in English In would be in, I mean, geez, we say yeah. English, but you know, English, is, English is the lingua franca. So in many other countries, they will put their forms into English, but I can guarantee you that, uh, <laughs> China's not one of those countries. And yeah. uh, and like the idea that you go to, to China and can you imagine that you have a Chinese, a Chinese citizenship paper or, or visa or whatever. And uh, it's in like Hungarian and, <laughs> and Turkish and uh, and Arabic and and Indonesian. And there's and there's English. I mean, it, it, but it, I, I think that is also what drives people to want to come to America is because. It's supposed to be more welcoming for that. And I do agree. I do think that we have a heavy influx of people in the country that we do need to have a better immigration system working for that. I think we do need to work out ways that it can work out well for us and for everyone. And to your point, China is so overpopulated, they have a limit to how many children you could have. And that's why they were drowning females in rivers because they can't pass on the namesake. That's why you can, uh, you were able to uh, a while back adopt a lot more female Chinese children. And we haven't done that in the States and we would never do that in the States. I say never, but there's always a possibility. And so then you have the idea that like you said, the immigration system, the melting pot is no longer there, but people are still coming in and there's no integration assimilation. They're coming in and baking their own areas. And then we're becoming more overpopulated and more overpopulated. And there is nothing in place for us here. There's nothing in place for them in China or any other country to stop that or to help our overpopulation. That's not something that we've looked into doing the fact that countries have to now build up 
instead of out is a real thing. There's not enough land in this world. We're killing the planet. I don't care whose views or how you want to look at it. We're absolutely overpopulating a planet that can't outlast us. We're, we're killing it by doing that. And then we're trying to build up on doing it and on each other for purposes of China and United States having that ability for it. And it just, I think that is crazy. I do think that needs to be a change to it. I do agree that the idea behind the melting pot has changed. I do not feel we're all there, but I do also believe that it's also our fault for that. We have stopped wanting to have integration between everyone. We all think as a country that we're better than we are and we're better than other people. It's not a, a talking down on things, but that's just how, if you talk to people, you hear that. It's a, why well, I'm better than so-and-so. Okay, well, that's great. Well, I'm better than these people because I've been here. I, for sure, I don't think I could pass immigration test. I also don't think that I'm better than everybody. Now, do I think I'm smarter than some? Yeah. Stronger than some? Yeah. There are tons of people in this country that are way smarter than me, way stronger than me. I don't know if they're as attractive, but that's just, that's, you know, their own deal. <laughs> yeah, I really like the point that you made about we are building up instead of building out. And this is one of the reasons why I really wish that Americans traveled more, because a lot of Americans believe. So <laughs> if everyone on Earth was to have the lifestyle that we Americans enjoy, the average American enjoys, it would require nearly eight Earths to have produced this amount of material to support this lifestyle. So, uh, for example, the average American has uh, many, uh, it's like what the, the average income of an American is like 50 times higher than the average income of a Congolese in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So I think it's so funny is that all, all of these Americans believe that uh, that everything is just going to last forever, that our suburbs are just going to keep growing, that our highways are just going to keep expanding, that uh, that everything's okay, that it's totally permanent. And then you leave the United States, and outside of a few regions of the world, single-family housing is basically non-existent. Mm -hmm. um, in many countries, there is virtually no single-family housing in any urban area or suburban area whatsoever. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about China. Of course, you know, China, yes, right? Everybody <laughs> would think China. But I'm talking places like you wouldn't even expect, like let's say in Central America. If you go to, say, Guatemala or Mexico, the number of people living in single-family homes with a piece of land that's detached as a percentage of the population within cities is very, very low. And so... Um, and so, yeah, it's true. It's uh, like, you know, you go back, like I said, I, I've uh, my most recent uh, ancestors to, to the Western Hemisphere were from Germany and Denmark. And if you look at Germany and Denmark, the vast majority, well, I shouldn't say the vast majority, but <laughs> a majority of people live in little shoeboxes in the sky, apartment buildings. Uh, they're not living in detached, you know, you go to the average city in, Ger in Germany and do you see giant suburbs full of white picket fences and 
houses with yards outside of the city. No, you, you just see like three-story apartment blocks. And so, um, and so our situation here in North America, our incredible standard of living that we have been able to, well, not really we, but our ancestors have left for us, is, is very rare and is very special. And we have to be more protective of it because, I mean, a, a middle-class person living in a detached home with land that they own, with a car. I mean, this is profoundly rare in the world, profoundly rare. And yet Americans just think that, well, we can import an endless stream of people who don't even want to speak our language, as you said, and yet everything is going to stay the same. The suburbs are just going to keep growing. The highways are just going to keep expanding. Our standard of living is going to remain the same. We're going to keep this income that's 50 times higher than people in the Congo. That Everything's going to stay the same. But then, you know, you go to California, this place that used to be, I mean, the Californian dream. I mean, what state has a dream named after? It's only California. But the California dream is a reference to the California of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and to a lesser extent, 80s. It is not a reference to the California of the 90s, the, the 2000s, or the 2010s, or even, even now the 2020s. I mean, boy, does anyone really think they're going to go to California these days and get a convertible and drive the highways without traffic, the wind blowing through their hair? They're going to have their nice house on the coast uh, with their with their upper middle class income. I mean, it's never going to happen. And so, yeah, I, I go to California and, and I, I see California turning into uh, the other part, other parts of the world. I, I see California transitioning into just becoming another place in the world, just another kind of upper middle income uh, place in the world. And remember upper middle income sounds like Mexico is an upper middle income country. Mm-hmm. Uh, people forget that the, the Western Hemisphere, our poverty here in the Western Hemisphere is much less severe than poverty in the Eastern yeah. Hemisphere. And so it's so funny as people go, oh, you know, oh, Mexico is as bad as it can get. And no, no, no. Actually, Mexico is uh, above average. Mexico is actually a middle, uh, upper middle income country, uh, upper middle income country. And what you see is um, California and, and many other parts of the United States transitioning to becoming kind of upper middle income, second world t- style countries, uh, kind of like what you'd see in Central America. You, what, so in California, you're just seeing kind of people are out. Most of the uh, lower class and middle classes have to live in apartments uh, and take public transit or they can only maybe afford one car per family. And then um, the only, it's only the rich and the powerful that are able to live in detached homes and have one car per person. And, um, and uh, you know, society is extremely striated between the rich and the poor, and the cities are very overcrowded. It's, it's interesting. California uh, had, like, what, 20 million people just a short time ago? And but yet it had the exact same number of interstate highways, the exact same number of international airports, the exact same number of cities. And now California is well past 40 million and um, no more airports, no more cities, no more roads, no more suburbs. So and the government out there is really trying to get you guys to all live in uh, shoeboxes and uh, take public transit. So, yeah, but see, the idea of. 
an influx coming in and it turning into everything else is a reality until we can do something about that and make it feasible. And yeah, the ideal that I want to own a, what is it? Three bedroom, two and a half bath house and have 3.2 kids or 2.3 kids. I don't never understand that point three or two thing on it, but, and you want to have your two cars and your, your lot of land. I get that. That is what we have grown up to think is an American dream of our own. And I, I do understand that that's not the norm around the world. And California itself is one of the biggest economies in the world. California by itself is. And yeah, we have an influx of more and more and more people in. That is people from all around the country and from all around the world to be here. Now, the idea that we have the same roads, uh, multiple different uh, public transits, whether it's going to be trains, planes, however, are still the same. And they're still running on the same technology is what burns me the most. And that goes back to the beginning conversation of the political world of not wanting to move forward. Um, Yet Elon Musk just gave California plans to make a bullet train that can go from LA to San Francisco in 30 minutes. And they said, well, pump the brakes. We're going to make a locomotive do that. It's going to take hours. But that's because the influence of the people that control that power have sold themselves to the industry of doing that. Now, I think with modern times and modern immigration needs to come modern thoughts. I think California's ideas are better than most. I do think that all homes across the country should be built with solar abilities built into them. I think that's a fantastic idea. My brother's new house was built that way. I also know that solar power is, once it's done, ending up in a landfill. So it's a, it's a double-edged sort of doing things. So I think immigration is something that needs to be addressed for it. I don't think that it's something that is modernized. I think we still have an old ideal of what it is because like you said, everyone thinks everything's going to be the same. It's going to be perfectly fine. But then you look at people when they build new homes and the home is now that far from the home next to it and you can literally take a dump and reach out the window and borrow toilet paper from your neighbor and pull it back in. And that bothers people because that's not how they're used to seeing things. So, yeah, I do agree that it's changing. They are building people on top of each other, in California especially. And a shoebox condo in California, in San Francisco or L.A., how I want to go for it, sells for like $1.3 million. I don't know who can afford a 10 by 10 room for $1.3 million, but that's the going rate. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's interesting the points that you made about environmentalism. Um, because have you ever been to a Trump rally before? No. So I've been to one Trump rally. Uh, I actually went to his last Trump rally that he held as president, the one he did in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think is... Um, kind of interesting about the people that were collected there. And this is this is in Georgia, so you know it's thousands of miles away from where I'm from. 
And it's, it's kind of interesting because a lot of the people out where I'm from, they are very um, kind of aesthetically, culturally, uh, personally just opposed to uh, kind of these conservative types, these, uh, these Republican types. These, uh, you know, Trump types, whatever. I was about to say, do you mean Republican conservative or do you mean Trump conservative? Because there are a deviation that you, you have the GOP, the gray and old party, and then you have the Trump party. They, they have been specifying there are two differences and he's trying to make his own. Well, in this area, they're actually still the same. And that is environmentalism. Uh, that is environmental policy. And what's so funny is that a ton of people out here in the Northwest, and I'm sure it's uh, true in California as well, a lot of people are like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I consider myself patriotic. I, I, I like the patriotism. I like that stuff. I like those vibes. But I'm also really into protection of the environment. And uh, especially out here and it's, in California, we have so many parks and, and natural areas, so much beauty. And so... When we, uh, when people out here, uh, people on the West Coast hear the anti-environmental rhetoric, they get so unbelievably turned off. Um, I mean, instantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, it, it doesn't matter what a lot of these uh, people have to say. So, um, yeah, I don't know if any Republican operatives are listening. <laughs> you might want to uh, adopt a more pro-environment stance so you can have more success out here on the West Coast. I think um, the Republican Party's given up the West Coast. Like they don't think they are trying to do much for it. But they're also not fighting for environmental anything. The defense behind all of it is you're you're giving up people's jobs. You're losing jobs. The Exxon pipeline lost thousands upon thousands of jobs. No, it lost one thousand jobs. 1,000. The projection was an additional 10,000 jobs out there. And it was already leaking all over the place. And they did an eminent domain to take uh, Native American land to be able to run things. And I'm not naive to believe in any way, shape, or form that the production of solar panels or the production of electric vehicles is any less hazardous to our environment than anything else that's being produced. It's something that I think people look past because the products that come out of it are considered good for the environment. But what are we doing with those Prius batteries, the Bolt batteries, Tesla batteries, when they no longer can be used, they're not being recycled, they're not being reused, they're going into landfills as well. But during the fact during the fact that they're being used, they're not expelling, you know, emissions out of them as bad as my 1974 Datsun sitting in my garage or my 1970 Cadillac hearse sitting in my driveway. Those are eating dinosaurs every time I push the pedal. And I understand that. That doesn't make me any less of a understanding person for the environment, but I'm also not stupid enough to say, well... We've been using petrol. I love the word petrol, by the way. We've been using it for so long. Why don't we just stay on things and just keep going status quo? Because the world can't handle that. Uh, yeah. And um, 
it, here's here's a one fun one that you might kind of enjoy being there in California. California has so much what I would call performative environmentalism. And that is where they mandate some policy on at, at like the individual level, like oh well, we're going to use uh, no more plastic straws. We're going to have paper straws now. You know, oh wow, wow, look what we've done. And it's like I've never thrown garbage or plastic into a waterway before so who exactly are you creating plastic straws for because i mean uh, paper straws for because uh, i was i wasn't after finishing my drink i wasn't throwing the plastic into the uh into the river after being done with it um and so and then and then you look it up and oh well actually uh the vast vast majority of the plastic in the world's oceans comes from actually just a few rivers in asia <laughs> so um, it's so funny that you always hear people go, well, we have to ban plastic straws in California because there's, there's the, the, you know, the, the plastic, they're strangling sea turtles. And it's like, well, well sure, but what percentage of the, wor- the plastic in the world's oceans are produced by Americans or produced by, by even the Western Hemisphere? I bet well, you that... Uh, that's a, that in itself is its own issue because before the Trump era, we actually uh, exported all of our waste and recycling to China. They took it all on barges and they would then bring it into China and they'd actually burn it. They burn the plastic out there in China. I mean, uh, I, you can Google it and you can pull up the city where they're doing it. And the people that live in or near those areas, they just bleed out of their eyes. Like they're crying blood. So to say that, oh, it's coming out of China or somewhere else, it's not here. Well, we sold them all this. That's why there was barges that weren't able to land anywhere with recycling. That's why the recycling environment in the United States itself is having a hard time surviving. A lot of it that we are separating in our own stuff is getting thrown into landfills. I've got family that work for uh, the waste department that are like, it's you're separating it, but it's going to landfills. We have nowhere to port it. No one's exporting it. No one's taking it. I mean, think about even, I guess it's probably so now, but I heard more about it uh, at the beginning of the Trump presidency. And before that, we'd have people from Arizona and other states coming into California to recycle things that didn't come from California to get their money for the CRV to drive it back out of the state. So it's, uh, a fun thing to think about doing it. And um, a friend of mine actually helped write that bill for the straws. So <laughs> I've actually heard more of that argument over the past few years than a lot of other ones. Nice. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sympathetic to the, to the spirit behind it. I, I, I certainly think that the people who are doing, writing these things, they have their heart in the right place. But I, I like, so what's, what's interesting is that I, I in my travels, um, something that people don't think about because we grow up here is that forests are very rare. Like the existence of many trees mm. that have not been cut down, that are next to each other, that are growing out of the earth. It's actually a, becoming a quite rare thing outside of the Western Hemisphere. In the Western Hemisphere, we've got plenty of forests. I mean, you, you look all over Central America covered in forests, the eastern half of this country covered in forests, all the hills and mountains the western half of this country covered in forest um but you go to the eastern hemisphere and you say go to india there's more people living in india than there are 
all people who identify as European living in the entirety of the world. And how many forests are there left in India, giant India? Well, there's a little bit here in Kerala, the forest state. That's what Gandhi called it, or the garden state. Pardon me, Kerala, sorry. There's a few forests out here in, in central eastern India, kind of that's jungle book land. That's where the tigers are um, over in West Bengal and such. But for the most part, the Indians have cut down basically the entirety of all forests within their country. Uh, India, historically, uh, more than uh, most of India was forested. But now very, very, very little of India is forested. And that is the case with the vast majority of countries within the Eastern Hemisphere. And so it's so kind of funny to me when you, when you meet Californians who are like, uh, we have to have, um, you know, if, you, if you're, oh, you're a monster for wanting an immigration moratorium, you know, uh, we're a nation of immigrants, more, more. And then in the same point, they're like, oh, but I'm a huge environmentalist and we, we have to have uh, paper straws and we have to live in our shoebox in the sky and eat crickets and take public transit. <laughs> and, and, and I'm like, there has, where is the disconnect here? <laughs> we've done a decent, we've done a very good job preserving our land, preserving our natural things, um, keeping enough space for our people. But then we, but yet then we have this kind of perception of environmentalism, like we are, you know, we have to, <laughs> it's just about emissions and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's very strange that, the, unfortunately, the conversation in the United States is so focused on, uh, like, emissions, and it's not focused on land preservation, uh, so many other things. Because, yeah, but I feel oh, no, that crazy. conversation for environmentalism is akin to, not that we're trying to get into that one, or this one, but uh, religion. It's you pick and choose which things you want to stand for, and which things you don't. Like, oh, yeah, you couldn't do that. Jesus wouldn't like that. Okay, but you work on Sunday. Yeah, well, that's the Sabbath. So now we should stone you to death. So it's like, so we want to have immigration come in and everyone be here, but everyone has to use paper straws and drive electric vehicles. It's like, but you, you can't have everything and pick and choose one or the other. And that thing that goes back to my previous comments of I think that's where people need to have a better well-rounded education on the topics that they're looking at doing because bringing more people in is going to bring more pollutants in it's going to bring more everything in and without having a system in place to help prevent things or expand things it doesn't matter what you do we can stay status quo and we can do what Trump wanted to do and build an entire wall around this country and if we don't change what we're doing it's not going to get better nothing's going to change if we live with an old mentality of thought or a it's worked this far so we can do it so yes i do think that there needs to be more stringent ideals on an immigration i do think that the idea of a melting pot like you said has probably stopped but i also believe that that ideal of that melting pot from then has to adapt or else what's the point? I think a lot of things have to change and adapt. That's 
human nature is we all adapt. That's how we're able to stay alive this long and do what we do. Because if we didn't, we'd still all be cavemen. If we didn't learn and adapt and go forward with life and education, I think that's a big thing. And for me, for people that don't want to move forward and want to stay where they're at, that's the problem. And yes, you're right. A lot of things in California, like emissions are huge here, but it's just like anything else. It's got to start somewhere. And it sucks that they have to assume it has to start in California. But if you look at things like I do, and I kind of look at things in a, in a car world and the mentality of things, um, my daily driving vehicle right now is a 1999 Subaru Legacy Outback Wagon. An old nothingness of the world that I am heavily, heavily positive that was it. Very, very popular vehicle with lesbians in California. I have no qualms about saying that. I've talked to many of them and they agree. So I crack up with that one. But it's, it's not a new vehicle. It's an old vehicle that I purchased that was broken, that's fixed, that passes emission regulations and everything else. Perfectly fine. But if you look at what my car from 1999 has in it. No power seats. Power windows. Power locks. AC, heat, and a cassette deck. In 1999, CD players were around, but they were upper echelon cars had them. And so you look at how the car world is. You would have a Mercedes that could self-park, that had vibrating seats when you'd back up. I think women would back up a lot more, and so would men if they had that on all the time. And so all these things come in, these upper echelon cars. They have all these great, fantastic things. Now you're buying a Kia that can park itself. A Ford truck, you push a button and it can back a boat up. So just like environmental law and high-end car deals, it has to start somewhere. It's going to cost a lot of money at some point and a lot of anguish to get things done. But if we don't start it somewhere, then we're all driving a Ford Pinto that blows up when someone kicks the bumper. So it's like, you, you have to start somewhere. And California is the, what does everyone think? My, my uncle's from Texas and now lives in North Carolina. And I'm pretty sure he thinks we're all a bunch of granola-eating, tree-hugging hippies. So... Well, I, I don't know. You know, I, 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 um, I'm, uh, I'm from uh, Southern Oregon. I was actually born pretty close to the border with California there on the coast. And um, so I feel kind of personally about California because when I look at the United States and I go, well, where could I live? Where would I live if I could live anywhere ideally? I go, well, I would live in California, but it's like, but would I live in California today? And the answer is no. And And it makes me very sad because I look at, you know, if all the United States was, it was, was equally well run, was equal, had an equally good trajectory, then I would go, no way am I going to live in North Carolina. You know, North Carolina is very nice, but North Carolina is not nearly as beautiful and doesn't have nearly as good of weather as California. Um, and I mean, so many more, uh, so many, uh, so much more, um, 
economic, cultural, and political institutions are in California. The cities are, I, I think, more more beautiful. Um, you know, nobody's going to say that uh, that Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, is more beautiful and stately uh, than San Francisco. But yet, so many Americans these days are picking to live in North Carolina instead of California, and that really breaks my heart as a West Coaster. Uh, and I don't know. I, just, I look at California and I go, geez, you know, I'd love to live in California because it's like the best of the, it's, it's the best of the Northwest without the bad weather and with a lot more people and a lot more opportunity. Um, but then I go to California and I visit <laughs> there and, and I'm like, geez, I, I, there's just not an American dream to be found out here. This is just not the place for an American to find their way, to try and make their life, to establish themselves. Uh, to 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 look for a good standard of living, and it really just it breaks my heart. It really angers me. It frustrates me. It makes me very angry. Uh, do you do you kind of feel the same way about California, or what do you think about that? I think California's got its pockets of good and bad. Um, I think the cost of living in California is exponentially higher than pretty much any other state we have. Uh, I mean, take yourself out of Manhattan proper. And it's probably that way for it. Now, out of all of California, I love Northern California the most. I love holiday down in SoCal. I also like holiday. It's a fun word to say. We don't use it as nearly as well as the Europeans do. But um, going down to Santa Barbara, San Diego, to hang out there for a little bit, I think it's fantastic. I love all of that. I love the history and car culture in California. If there were someone to say, where's the best place for me to come to the United States and be able to thrive, I don't think that there's any one place that's better or worse than the other. I think if you want to have a better starting off point, California is not the place to be because it's hard to live here with just the cost of living in itself. But that goes back to a political thing and minimum wages and pay scales and all kinds of stuff. But even your idea of people are going to like North Carolina or they're going to the outskirts of Atlanta to go move. You have people that are in the country itself going all over and changing where they want to live because they don't want to live in California for the politics, the cost of living. Or my house that costs me $300,000 to purchase will buy you a lot of land in a mansion in North Carolina. So you can get more for your money over there. But then you look at it, you're moving to a state in a city that the people that live in that same area are also not from there. I know enough people in the outskirts of Atlanta that have massive, massive lots of land for half the cost of what it would cost to get a five-bedroom house in United in uh, California, in Northern California at that. And everyone in these cities is from New York or Chicago or from Atlanta. Like, they've all been moved out from the places because you can move here, live off the same salary and doing things. But the funny thing is the people that moved to these remote locations are still working for the same companies they were and these other large metropolitan cities. So they're getting California money, but they're working in Georgia. They're getting Manhattan money, 
but they live in North Carolina because their jobs have been able to put them in that location. Now, if that's how these cities are going to work, that's going to bring up the cost of living for everyone out there because supply and demand is going to go that way. Oh, you can pay twice as much for this house as other people can, and they can see the income driving that way. So that's going to change things quickly. No, but to go back to your original idea, I do think California is a fantastic state. I love it to death. I've been all over this country and I don't want to deal with snow on a daily basis or rain on a daily basis. And so where I'm at in Northern California, within three hours, I can be in the snow or I can be at the beach. I can be in uh, Nevada. I can do that. I can drive for eight hours and be in San Diego. I've done that after I rebuilt my 74Z. It was literally two days after I built that car. I drove it all the way down I-5 into Southern California and was there doing it. And so do I think it's the best place for me? I love it. I'm from Staten Island, New York. I've been to Manhattan. I go back to Manhattan. I've been to LA. LA is overcrowded. I don't like being there and sitting in traffic all the time, but my traffic here sucks too. Traffic across the country is just bad in general. So it's, what are you looking for? What is it you want to do? And I think if you look that way, you can figure it out. But no, I don't think California is the best starting spot for people to come to if you come to California without a butt ton of money and savings. Yeah. What do you think California is going to look like in 20 years? I think uh, the majority of the Western seaboard is going to be underwater. I think that's going to have to be pushed back a little bit. That's why you see those uh, actual uh, lands being purchased and being bought up now and pushing people out of it. Um, I would love, absolutely love to see a bullet train in the next 10 years, all the way from San Diego, all the way up through Washington. I would (laughs) love to see that. Oh, I'm afraid it's never going to happen, my man. It's never going to happen, ever. That's a that's a lot of terrain. I mean, people forget though. Like, it's it's kind of funny that I I uh, I meet my more um, I hear a lot of my more kind of left leaning friends, and they, they'll talk about the bullet trains. We should have bullet trains, and yes, we should have bullet trains. It's it's true, but um, I don't think that uh, it is going to be a long time before bullet trains ever become uh, much of a thing outside uh, west of the Mississippi and outside of Texas because. Uh, the, terrain's not the nice. cities here what was that the terrain's not nice <laughs> yeah yeah the terrain is just too rugged and the cities are just too far away and i mean when i say too far away people really don't don't know what i mean when i say that like if you go to say you know europe right where mainland europe where a lot where mm-hmm. a lot of people are thinking about these trains the distance from paris to berlin is like the distance from uh from los angeles to San Francisco. So, in fact, it might actually be a little bit more to go from L.A. to San Francisco than to go from Paris to, to Berlin. And Paris to Berlin is basically completely flat. Why do you think they've had so many wars? Because yeah. <laughs> they can just march right into each Walk other's through. territory whenever they want to. Whereas out here, you'd be tunneling through many mountains, uh, rivers, lakes. I mean, it's a mess. And you're connecting cities that are are just 
unbelievable distances apart. I mean, the different distance between Sacramento and Portland is like the difference. I remember when I was in, I remember visiting Yosemite National Park and I had driven mm-hmm. from uh, Oregon. I'd driven from, uh, from, an air, from a couple, like an hour south of Portland to mm-hmm. Yosemite. And I was talking to a British uh, couple who had taken my picture, me and my friend's picture, and they said, oh, where'd you guys come from? And he said, oh, we, we came from Oregon. It wasn't that far. It was just like a seven-hour drive, <laughs> right? Because for us out in the West, us in the Wild West, you know, seven, eight hours to go between cities is not wild. It's not, it's not, it's not even that far. I mean, seven hours won't even get me to, like, uh, to, like, through another state like seven hours will just get me to a neighboring state that's it and i think for me it's a nine hour drive if i uh if i drive conservatively from sacramento to portland yeah yeah nine hours yeah geez yeah so nine hours so i was telling them this and they were like well you know we're from the uk and you could drive all the way from southern england the top of scotland and back down to england again in the time and distance that you guys have done to come here. And you've only gone from Oregon to neighboring California. So <laughs> unfortunately yeah. the bullet trains, yeah, they could definitely be a thing back East, but it, it's, it's well, and not my be. idea of it isn't to take new land. Cause no one's going to let you do that, but to replace what we have in place. Now we already have tracks in place that go all over the country and replacing that with modernizing things that wouldn't jeopardize any transportation that we use now that still works from there for people as well as any products that go up that way. And I do believe the East coast is more of a prevalent area that you could be able to have a train going from Manhattan down to Florida and, and taking that kind of stuff. But it's the mentality of being able to do that because I've taken public transit a lot in my life. And I've waited at light rail stops where the train has been canceled because it's over a half an hour late. But in Japan, I think it's Japan, if it's two minutes late, you get a full refund. And like they excuse you, like give you excuses for your job, like two minutes. That's an extreme late time in Japan to have the train being late. You know, here it's like 20 minutes. Oh, we'll just cancel. We'll have another one come out. And you have to explain to your boss, I was, I was trying to take the BART and trying to get there and it, it just, it just stopped. I don't know. I can't do anything. Like it just, uh, it hasn't changed. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, everything in this country, it's, we, I mean, you, you look at, you look at our history and you look at say the period of uh, the years after the civil war until kind of uh, let's say, the 1960s and we were on fire we built so many cities we integrated so many states we did everything basically everything that you see in this country pretty much all of the epic things mm-hmm. uh were pretty much built in between like 1890 and 1970 and uh it is very frustrating it is very annoying um that we as americans watch as these cool new things happen in other countries and here we're still using the same things that were built in the 50s 60s 70s and so yeah and obviously the train the fact that for example i was in china and 
and uh, they have a brand new high-speed rail network system uh, connecting all the major cities of the eastern seaboard, which is uh, the kind of the the heart of their country. And um, it's incredible. The stations are like the size of, of airports. Mm-hmm. They are beautiful, clean, organized. The trains come on time. The trains go at 200 plus miles an hour um, and incredible and affordable. And, uh, and yeah, and, and it's, just, it's just a shocking embarrassment that I'm here in China, that I'm in a, in a country that is still, still very much, many parts of it are absolutely third world. And the fact that I'm on this train, I'm, I'm blasting at 200 plus miles an hour mm-hmm. and I'm looking out and I'm seeing villages where people used to be in destitute poverty. They used to be hand-to-mouth rice farmers. And now they're building brand new six-lane dual carriage highways all over the place. You know, from, from out in the middle of nowhere. And they're building highways that are better than what we have between our major cities. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they have these, this beautiful train system that they're rapidly expanding. They have so many new airports. I flew into an airport that was um, less than two decades old in Beijing. And I flew out of an airport that was less than less than a decade old in Guangzhou. Both beautiful, giant, massive international airports, nicer than many of our international airports here in the United States. And so it really is a massive frustration to see my people and my country incapable of producing what I've experienced abroad in countries that are more poor, more broken, and, and countries that I, quite frankly, feel are, have a far lower standard of living to see them uh, capable of producing uh, public infrastructure that is oftentimes better than what we have produced. And I I think that the reason for this, and you mentioned Japan, I I spent a few weeks in Japan. um, And yes, when I was taking the metro or or the train, um, it was always on time. The platforms were always beautiful and clean and everything was always nice. But the Japanese people are radically different than the American people. And Japan is a radically different country than the United States. First, I mean, Japan, we're speaking about a people that uh, Japan, the country of Japan is like 99% of the citizenry, 99.6% or something of the citizenry of the country of Japan identify as Japanese. Um, And so when you go to Japan, uh, I remember getting on the train and you would see the old men getting coming off of their salaryman jobs. And Japan's very, a very old country. And so there's a lot of very old people all over the place. It's the oldest country in the world. And uh, in terms of the pe- people's age. And so, you know, you see the, the old men getting off of their salary jobs, getting onto the train. And they're all wearing white shirts with black slacks, maybe a tie. And then the boss, he's wearing the black jacket. And then, every, and then everyone's, you know, they're starting to drink because it's, you know, Japan like the, like to drink after work. So they're starting to drink a little bit on the train. And, uh, you know, they're hanging out and you just, you see them there. And it's like, and you look through the train car and it'll be like every single man is, has a white shirt with black pants. And every single woman has, you know, like a gray skirt. And you go, okay, yeah, I can see why uh, people that are as culturally unified as this in a in a one of the most homogenous countries on earth yes i can see why these people are capable of creating good public systems because there is so much group consciousness so much public consciousness so much um communal mentality but 
<laughs> I mean, show me a transit system that has ever been successful in the history of the United States. Because we're just too individualistic. And, 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 you know, I mean, look at the United States. What percentage of the population of the United States identifies as, a, as an American without qualification, as an unhyphenated American? It's less than 70% or so. So the, the idea that we, that. this tangling squabble of nationalities, this massive country of individualists, uh, you know, that we're, that we, the descendants of cowboys who love our cars, you know, went from horses to cars. We love our interstate highway. The idea that we're going to be able to build public transit in the way that the Japanese have. Um, I just don't ever see it happening in my life. No, I, I can see it starting somewhere. I, I don't think it's ever going to be finished to the degree I'd like it to be in my life. I, I don't even like the way that our public transit in Sacramento works. I've flown in and out of Portland. I don't know how many times in my life. And I love being able to fly into Portland at the airport, jump on light rail for what was like five bucks and then be brought down into the middle and heart of Portland where I can get a taxi or go to wherever I want to take a same train takes me to Beaverton. If I'm going to go see a friend out in that area, I think that's a wonderful thing to be able to do. Sacramento started building a light rail to the international airport and stopped at the Arco Arena because they stopped having the Kings play there and built a new arena in downtown. We have no public transit that goes to our international airport. You can drive there and fly out of the country, but you can't fly in there and get to the city on light rail. It's one of the dumbest things I think I've seen happen here, and that's an idiocy of its own, but... Flying out in any other place to be able to do that, I think it's fantastic. Flying into Paris, jumped right on the train there, was able to go to anywhere I wanted to be out of that area. I took the train out of, um, I think we went uh, from Germany, was it maybe, to England. And I went out to London out there. I think that is something that we do need to be able to do, but I think that our capitalist culture and people that want to make money off of things because we don't want to reuse the same things. Like I said, rebuilding the tracks we have out there is not something we want to do. So now they need to use this lot of land. So without using eminent domain, they've got to purchase it. But people that say you want to purchase it now want 10 times what it's worth because the government wants to use it. Yeah. And you're, you're absolutely right about, uh, yeah, we have to start. We have to try. Even if we're not going to be the best at it, even if we're not going to be number one in transit, we should still try. And you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I uh, I've spent some time in Portland. Spent a lot of time in Portland, and um, there is a pretty decent uh, light rail system by American standards that I have enjoyed. And you're right. It it is nice to be able to get into the go into the airport, go downtown, get to other places, um, and that should be something that exists in every major American city. I mean, the fact that we don't have uh, a light rail metro or a BRT going to every single one of our airports and connecting them to our downtowns is just an embarrassment. Um, however, I would say, though, that our goal, if uh, our public policy goal or our, our, our goal for our society should be one in which the car is the default uh, method of transportation that, that Ideally, we want to have a society in which every person can have a car and then only has to take transit 
um, when we're in a different city, maybe we're when we're in a very urban city and it's very hard to park. Um, but yeah, I mean, come on. It's like, it's kind of this idea of like, I always meet these, it's, you always meet Americans who say, I mean, what's that, what's that joke about public transit? Something, something like uh, 90% of respondents in a new survey believe that other people should take public transit, <laughs> right? Yeah. It, it's this idea of, because we're not communitarian, because we're not communal, we, every, you know, we, we, um, our transit is very good because they go, well, I got a car. So I screw everybody who takes transit, you know, let, let transit fall apart because I have my car. So I've got what's mine. Whereas in a lot of other countries where the societies are more communal, where there, where the country is more of a nation state, where there is a more of a homogeneity and a solidarity amongst the people, they're going to go, well, maybe I take a car. Maybe I'm a little older and wealthier. And so now I have a car, but I want, but I took the train when I was younger and I want, those of the younger generation who I identify with and love and I, I have solidarity with, I want them to uh, take nice trains that are safe and clean and fast and reliable. Uh, and so I'm going to keep paying taxes and going to keep uh, paying in money and I'm going to keep supporting these systems, even if I no longer have to have them. Whereas we, we as Americans, we're kind of like, well, you know, screw you. I've got what's mine. Um, so, you know, a lot of Americans view public transit as like a, as like a, social it's, a, program. it's, a it's a lower class kind of transportation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're like, Oh, the public transit system. That's like a, it's like a public welfare program. This, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, so it, it, it's just unfortunate to, to see in, in other countries where there is more of a community care, where there is more of a, you know, we all succeed together. And then um, I but, see it. I, I'm the reverse of your idea of everyone should be able to afford a car and then use public transit if they need it. I think we should have a community where everyone's using public transportation. And if you need a car, you can buy one or you have now like jump cars where you can kind of get a car and kind of go where it needs to be done. And I'm saying this as a heavy, Heavy, heavy car guy. I am 38 years old and I've owned 20 plus vehicles in my life. My wife and I just joked about this the other day and she's like, this is my third car I've ever had. But I've bought them, I've built them, and I've sold them. I've kept things out of landfills. I've kept things out of crushers to be able to keep using them and going that way. And I think if we were able to create a public transit system that was on time and as on time as other parts of the world, that would be a normal thing. The roads in Europe weren't built to have our size cars driving around through city streets and zooming around in them all the time. That's why they've got Citrons and Austin minis, all these tiny little cars that we don't have over here because we want big, burly American cars. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I would actually disagree with you a little bit because I look at myself and I have enjoyed driving so much. I've been to, uh, all the lower 48 States. I've driven through most of them. I love driving. I love the interstate highways. I love the mobility and freedom of an automobile. And I truly believe that uh, the automobile is a very fundamental aspect of our American culture and our American identity. And I, and I think to myself, how can I say, well, I love cars and driving and the freedom that comes with that and all those things. I, I think it's one of the greatest, one of the best assets in my life and one of the things I'm most grateful for. 
and I, I think all these things, but, but oh, well, those Americans living in California or New York or Florida, well, screw them. They should just take, they should just take transit. They should just take the bus because whatever, uh, who cares? Um, but I, I, I feel like, no, I, I, want, I want all of my uh, American men and women, all my fellow Americans to be able to experience the joys of the automobile on the open road if they so choose. But that phrase right there is exactly why I think the opposite is because I want to experience the open road. I don't want to get my race car out of the driveway and sit in traffic for the next four hours. If we had a system in place where we could use public transit on a regular basis and be able to, even if it's just to get back and forth to work. And I also, God hope that the world does not have to go back to work at least in the United States, and we can continue this remote login and working from home and saving the footprint of having to build up the buildings and commercial buildings, which comes at a very, very heavy, heavy disconnect of personal life and work. Um, and I understand that. But if we go back to the world where we're commuting back in and we have, we can put people on a bus that works well a system for public transit that works well for trains and getting there. When I get in my car, I can enjoy the open road and not merge onto a standstill of a freeway that goes nowhere. My commute uh, last year for 13 miles from my house to my job was 45 minutes each way. It's 13 miles. I biked there faster than that. Yes. Well, I mean, this, this is all true. This, these are all true points you're making. And h- however, I would say that I think that Americans should have a different uh, perspective when addressing this issue. So Americans in California and many other places, <laughs> here, in, here in the Northwest in Seattle and Portland, uh, they are like, geez, it's so crowded. It's so, it's so much traffic. Uh, maybe we should have some more transit because, geez, maybe get some, some of these people off the road, get them onto a bus. And that's a good idea. I mean, that's, but I would say we have to think about things in a bigger way. I would say that when I look at California and somebody, and they say, well, Los Angeles is too crowded. We, we can't have, um, we can't build any more roads. We can't uh, build any more houses. All we can do is build up and build transit. And, I say, well, sounds like Los Angeles should stop growing then. Sounds like Los Angeles uh, should not have any more people move into it. And if, in fact, if I had my way with the Western U.S., with, with California, I, I would simply say we need to take uh, 10 million plus people out of San Francisco, L.A., San Diego, Sacramento, and we have to build new cities where the traditional American standard of living, a detached house, the white picket fence, the car, the highway, the open road with the breeze in your hair, we can offer that to everyone. We just have to keep building more cities. I mean, obviously, when, uh, when Americans first came to California, there was nothing there. There was a few Spanish missions, and that was about it. And... Um, and so, obviously, all the things that, you, that we enjoy in California today, we had to build. 
Sacramento, Los Angeles, Bakersfield, Fresno, San Diego. I guess there was, you know, a few Jesuit missions in some of these places. But apart from that, there was nothing there. And we built these places so we can build. You know, who says I say, how about Reading could have two million people and giant highways and suburbs? And and how about Medford could have a million people? And then maybe Eugene could have a couple million people. And Portland could probably stand at another million people. Seattle's full. I don't think Seattle can take any more, but. <laughs> There, when we look at the Western U.S., when we look at the mountains, right, when we look at our, our part of this country, there is so much space. And yet we are just determined to slam people into these the few major cities of the West Coast. Um, what we need to be doing is we need to be building new cities, new airports, new highways. I mean, there's literally only one interstate highway it goes in between California and Oregon. It's an absolute absurdity. I mean, there should be like five uh, highway, interstate highways going in between Oregon and California. I-5 um, and the Highway 1 actually goes up, so there'd be two at least. Well, the, the 101 turns into just a regular road yeah. uh, like, uh, like 50 miles or so south of the, um, uh, south of the border with Oregon. So 101 is most, or one turns one. into 101 and yeah. turns into a regular road up to Northern California. Yeah, and it's it's also it's a ongoing battle of conserving open land to not develop it, and also trying to do what you can do with these overpopulated areas. My friends bought a house in San Diego because they lived there their whole lives. But there's no new developments in San Diego. You can't find anything being new built out there. People demolish homes and build them up and build bigger ones. But yeah, I do agree. I think there in some of these major cities do need to have a stop on letting people come in and doing things because there's nowhere to go from it. But that's a conversation that needs to be had with how do you do that? How do you stop people from moving in? How does that affect the economy when they're... It comes so much more than just hitting the brakes and pumping the brakes on that. That is beyond me to even want to try to rationalize. But I think it is a conversation that needs to be had. I do think that there's a heavy population of people in these cities that don't need to be there. That we're allowing to come in there. That we do have to have the ability to open up other areas or build out other cities. But the problem is that these major cities have these job opportunities for people to be able to work there. Whereas other cities don't have them. So you have people in Sacramento who are commuting on a daily basis to San Francisco because they're paid well, but they can't afford to live in San Francisco, even though they work there. So they drive hours each day, each direction to go to work because it's cheaper to live in Sacramento than it is to live anywhere in between Sacramento and San Francisco. So I do agree. I do think there is a conversation to be had of, of all of that. I think it's a deeper dive. And I I, uh, I would love to have a deeper dive with you on that, but I think we're going to have to cut this one a little bit shorter today. It's it's a long episode for us both. And uh, life, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. It was a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed having you on there. Um, 
hopefully I didn't have any out of left field ideals or anything that was kind of out there. I think my ideas are kind of rather straightforward and not overly offensive. I don't think they're offensive in any way, but that's not to say people don't think that they are. Um, I had a great conversation with you. It was really fun to have you on. Thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Where can people find you, Lander? Where are you? I know you've got an Instagram because I saw you topless out a picture on there. It's not the only picture I saw, by the way. There were other ones. That was just one I was like, all right, well, there's that. <laughs> I got a Facebook and there, your YouTube. And we'll list them on the podcast description below as well as the YouTube description below. But where can people find you? Oh, just look me up, Lander Nelson. Uh, you'll find me. I- I'm most active on uh, Instagram and YouTube. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. We need to do this again and have a, a fun deep dive for it. I'll have to bring more beer with me next time. So. <laughs> All right. Until then. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I want to thank Lander for coming on the show today. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Please do me a favor and check out Lander's YouTube channel. Check out his podcast as well. Everything is going to be listed in the podcast description. You can also do as he said and Google his name and you'll be able to find him all over the internet. It's a very popular name for him. It works out better than mine. Although when you do Google Herman James, you'll find thehermanjames.com and find the multiple platforms at which this show is on. So please, if this is your first time listening to this show, please subscribe. It helps the show out. Check out thehermanjames.com for all the platforms that this show can be found on or yell at your smart speaker to play The Rant with Herman James. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sharing. And I can't wait to be in your ears next time.